This morning's Bible reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 to 30. You should be able to find us on page 969 of the Bibles in the seats. Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 to 30, page 969. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown to prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body them for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Do please be seated. I wonder if you consider yourself an angry person. I suspect most of us uh, uh, probably don't. But what if I asked those who knew you best, would they consider you angry? Would they call you angry? Two of my three sons are sat down on the uh, row down here, so if you want to ask them whether they would consider me angry afterwards, you are very welcome to do so. I wonder what they will say. I don't wonder. I know what they will say. (laughs) Years ago, I remember hearing someone reflect that their marriage had taught them how selfish they were, and having kids had taught them how angry they were. It was something I immediately resonated with. You may have heard me say something similar. I found myself reflecting on that thought loads over the years. The newly married couple need to share everything with somebody else. That shows up selfishness, doesn't it? New parents must give up all independence, taking total responsibility for a new life. The child's safety, their development, their their growth, their mistakes. That quickly shows up in patience (laughs) and anger. And it's not so much that a husband or a wife or children or even close friends 
or family make us angry. It's more that those close relationships reveal what is already there. Could it be the case that God gives us close relationships of all sorts so that we can see the true nature of our selfishness and anger? Could it be that our relationships are one way that God gives us the required vision of those glasses that I was talking about last week? Could it? Well, in our next uh, section of the Sermon on the Mount, this time when Jesus is is teaching his followers with the, the crowds listening in on the hill, Jesus appears to say that that way of thinking is right on the money. Because when we get angry with each other, when we get angry with our kids, when we get angry with our spouses, with our work colleagues, with our Christian leaders... They're only bringing out what is there deep down inside of us all of the time. Warning. (laughs) Today we're going to be doing some serious heart surgery. This is an extremely important area for all of us to consider. All of us who claim to follow Jesus. Because our deepest attitudes have the potential to seriously damage our relationships with each other and our relationship and our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So please can you reopen your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, to Matthew 5, that's page 969, the passage we'll look at. Uh, And while you're doing that, I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please would you help us to come to you this morning in humility. Uh, Please would you help us to uh, see what you are saying to us through this part of your word. Please soften our hearts. Please would you remove our natural inclination to self-righteously justify and defend all our thoughts, our words, our deeds. And I also pray, Lord, that you would open up us up to the transformative power of your spirit as we seek to faithfully obey you. Amen. So, Matthew 5, are you there? Uh, I'm going to just go back actually to, uh, to verse 20 just to refresh ourselves. So I'm just going to go back to verse 20 and begin reading there. This is what we looked at last week. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's where we finished off last time. We saw, didn't we, how the king's law, how Jesus' law is radically new, but it's totally consistent with the old. And we also saw how this newness of the law needs to be seen in its application. King Jesus' law requires a greater, a more honest obedience. Jesus is not saying here that you need even more of the Pharisees and and the scribes kind of, of obedience. Rather, he is saying you need a different and a deeper kind of obedience altogether. And so over the next 28 verses, 
uh, which we're going to take in in three separate chunks, uh, Jesus is going to give us loads of practical examples showing us how the, the righteousness, the obedience of the scribes and Pharisees wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Interestingly, those religious leaders, they often interpreted uh, God's word so that, if you like, in in high jump terms, they they lowered the bar of righteousness. If you remember, we looked at this last week, they wanted to change God's word, didn't they? They took it out of context. They wanted to limit its application. But consistently, Jesus appears to act like the corrective high jump referee or official or whatever it is they call that person that stands by the high jump. He takes that lowered bar that the the Pharisees were trying to bring down and 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 he raises it higher than ever. It certainly seems to be the case when you read verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you look on actually, if you just quickly go over the page to verse 48, uh, Right at the end of this little section, right at the end of chapter um, uh, 5, in the end of this, of this teaching point, you'll see him say here, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, humanly speaking, this is an impossibly high bar. It's right up there. But with Jesus, what is impossible for men is perfectly possible. Now, I had thought about calling this sermon Raising the Bar, because that is certainly what Jesus appears to be doing. You have heard it said, this level, but I say to you, this level. But in my preparation, I came to see that, although in one sense that's perfectly true, in another sense it's potentially misleading. Because it leaves us open to the temptation that it is still all about what we do and what we strive for that makes us acceptable before God. That makes God think, oh, do you know what? You're doing all right. We're okay. Can we get to the required level or height? Yeah, you know, I, I think we can. If we, Yeah, great. Maybe we've made it then and we can relax. Well, if that is your attitude, Jesus wants to set his standards so impossibly high Because it's only then that you will truly understand your need of him and the gift of grace. Nothing in our hands, nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to that cross we cling. It's not through our efforts that we climb up to that level. And so actually I've become convinced that in these verses Jesus is primarily concerned with getting us to look in another direction. A more honest direction, a more transformative direction, a deeper direction, if you like. This is less about looking up at the raised bar, and it's more about looking deep, deep within to the state of our own hearts. Because we know, don't we, the truth of what the ancient prophet Jeremiah said? The heart is deceitful above all things. So I am convinced here that the demands of King Jesus go deep. They are demands that go deep. Do we want to follow Jesus more honestly? Do we, do we want to follow him more authentically, more fully? 
then we won't do much worse than listening in to these words in the rest of chapter 5. He gives us six examples to help us consider the depth of his law. And we're going to deal with two of them today, two in two weeks' time, and then two the week after that. Here is the first. Example number one. Realise what Jesus thinks of your anger. Realise what he thinks of your anger. Look back at verse 21 with me. This is verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So Jesus is quoting the the, the sixth commandment here. And after he said that that our righteousness needs to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, people must have, you know, reading this, breathed a sigh of relief and, and sort of brought this command to mind. I thought, well, I'm okay on that one. I've never actually murdered anyone. But that attitude is the attitude and the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, those religious leaders, because it brings the bar of the sixth commandment right down. So that it only includes literal murder. But what Jesus says next is that the sixth commandment was really always pointing to a different and a deeper kind of righteousness, a deeper kind of obedience all along. Remember, don't go up, go down or go within. Verse 22, here's what putting on those, those special glasses, those 3D glasses we talked about last week will give you. Verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. This is not so much HD vision but HS vision. It's not so much high definition, but Holy Spirit vision. It's supernatural, three-dimensional, X-ray, right to the heart, to the depths of the heart. The sixth commandment was never just a prohibition against the literal taking of life, but it was always pointing to a life without any sinful anger at all. When Jesus gives you HS vision, Holy Spirit vision, you begin to realize that what is going on deep down when we are sinfully angry is exactly the same as what is going on deep down in the heart of a literal murderer. Honestly, that should stop us in our tracks, shouldn't it? So, for example, this week, a group of like-minded Anglican church leaders wrote a letter to the Bishop of Chester, setting out some of our concerns regarding the current crisis in the Church of England. I'd asked for my name to be added to that letter, but it got left off. And I was quite cross. I got angry. For a number of reasons. One, I wanted my name to be on there, and it wasn't. But two, I was worried what other people would think about me as a result of my name not being on there. As it turned out, it was a genuine error by someone I respect and trust and admire greatly. 
But because I'd never communicated the strength of my initial feeling, he had no idea, I kept it to myself, I congratulated myself that I hadn't actually expressed my anger. Jesus won't have any of that. He goes deeper. He says, John, that selfish anger makes you subject to judgment. What about the time I was not as kind and as patient as I should have been with my phone and internet company? They've overcharged me. Again. Quite significantly. Again. Two months in a row now. I discovered this earlier this week. I was on the phone in an instant, as I'm sure you can imagine. And although it wasn't the agent's fault, I knew that. I did little, really, to conceal my frustration and anger and impatience to her. Oh, I consoled myself afterwards that at the end of the call I was civil enough and I thanked her for a time and put the phone down. But Jesus won't have any of it. Again, he goes deeper. He says, John, you are in danger of ending up in hell. Verse 22. Again, look at verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who um, uh, uh, says Raka, says to his brother Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. There is no hiding from these verses, friends. No hiding at all. I mean, Raka, maybe you think, oh, I'll hide. I don't know what that means, I'll, I'll hide behind it. Well, let me, let me just uh, reveal that a little bit for you. Raka is not a word that we immediately relate to, is it? Raka. It's basically a way of demeaning someone's intelligence. It's like saying, you stupid idiot. That's what it is. And we do that in anger a lot, don't we? At least in thought, if not out loud. Although if we're honest, in families, we say it out loud way more frequently than we keep it in. The crockery's knocked off the table. The instruction to clean the bedroom goes unheeded again. Or they make a decision with obviously disastrous consequences and before we know it, our selfish, our inconvenienced anger gushes up from within and we say, you stupid idiots. That's raka. It demeans intelligence. And we're answerable for that. Fool, on the other hand, is a way of demeaning somebody's character. In the Bible, fool usually refers to someone who has rejected God or has turned from him. Think of the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. Or the psalmist who utters, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But we also use that in anger, don't we? You're nothing but a no good. Fill in the blank. He or she is such a horrible. Fill in the blank. And the really frightening thing is that we seem perfectly content to speak like this when we're not angry either. For example, so often we can say cruel and hurtful things to each other in sarcastic banter or in our judgments of others. The Teasdale family are currently caught up in a traitor's obsession. Is anybody watching the traitor's? Anybody with us, or are we just, are we just, okay, one or, two, one or two of you are. Okay, so most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, let me tell you. It's a reality TV show 
Uh, I'm sorry, I'm confessing to watching a reality TV show, um, uh, in which 22 contestants compete to win their share of up to £120,000. But hidden amongst these contestants are traitors who can secretly eliminate other players in the game. They're known as faithfuls. It's a fascinating, if not brutal, sort of exercise in human psychology. Uh, We love it. Anyway, it occurred to me while I was writing this sermon this week how often watching the program one of us can say the equivalent of Raka, oh he's such a stupid so-and-so, or you fool, she's a bit of a nasty piece of work or, or whatever it is. When we're talking about these contestants we're not necessarily angry but we're still saying these hurtful words. We need to understand what Jesus makes of this. We need to understand what Jesus thinks of our anger. And he says that the way I thought about my Christian brother this week, the way I spoke to that call center person, the angry criticisms that I level at my now nearly all adult children, the cruel words that are thrown at the television, not to mention my silent frustrations with my wife, with my work colleagues, yes, even in the church, or my wider family. All of those things are why I deserve to go to hell. Because it shows not just that I get angry, but that deep down in my heart, I am angry. And if God were to let me join him in heaven... I'd only ruin it. Which is why he's got to transform me. Which is why he's got to change me. Which is why he sent Jesus. That's the first example. Put on the the Holy Spirit specs and realise what Jesus thinks of your anger. Here's the second example. Realise what Jesus thinks of your lust. And for this we need to jump down to verse 27. Verse 27 says this, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. So we've had the sixth commandment, now we're on to the seventh. The religious uh, leaders of the day, the the scribes, these Pharisees, they certainly knew the law. Uh, They knew the law about adultery. And they lowered the bar. And so do we. Say to ourselves, I've never actually had sexual intercourse with someone who isn't my wife. I'm fine. It's not a problem. But Jesus says, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. His heart. Here we go again. This direction we need to look in. Jesus is saying that the seventh commandment was never just about abstaining from sexual activity with somebody who isn't your husband or your wife. It's much deeper than that. It's about the heart. And Jesus appears to be saying here that you can commit adultery in your heart because of your eyes. Do you see that? He says, anyone who looks. Anyone whose head 
is turned by that beautiful person walking down the street and then looks a second time and a third time and a fourth time with each gaze the mind going deeper and deeper into an ungodly mental exercise. Anyone whose eyes keep being drawn back to that advert in the magazine or that image on the side of the bus stop. Anyone who intentionally watches or re-watches that film or that television program with anticipation of that scene or that moment. Anyone who looks longingly into their imagination and pictures themselves intimately with someone who isn't their husband or wife. When we do any of those things, Jesus says we've already committed adultery in our hearts. And part of our challenge today as 21st century Western Christians is that frankly adultery in our culture is no big deal. And we have to be aware of that. And the temptation is for us to view it in the same way. It's no big deal. And therefore, it's not quite as big a shock factor for us when Jesus says these words compared to perhaps when he's talking about anger or murder. But please don't be deceived by our culture. Adultery is a huge deal to God. It's one of the big ten. And according to the old law, not to be abolished, remember, Fulfilled in Jesus, according to the old law, it deserves death. We deserve to die. Perhaps a a comparison will help bring it home. I'm sure we all know, do we not, friends, family, who have committed actual physical adultery. We know of the devastation. We know of the pain. We know of the tragic consequences that flow. But then we look at those people and we compare. And we say, well, at least my looking at those images or watching those movies or the occasional second or third look aren't as bad as that. And Jesus would say, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. You're all adulterous, mental, spiritual, emotional. That kind of, those kinds of adultery, they all have the same tragic final consequences to that of physical adultery. It's our death. What then are we to do? Our anger deserves hell. Our lust deserves death and Jesus hates them both. What are we to do? Well, here's three things from these verses that the master himself recommends. First, our deeper righteousness requires Holy Spirit vision, HS vision. I've said it already. But we need to put on these special glasses that give us supernatural three-dimensional high definition x-ray vision that we need to see the true state of our hearts to see the true state of this world we need this Holy Spirit vision and I want to keep drawing you back to verses 17 
through to 20 over these coming weeks because they are the key to getting this vision correct. Jesus comes to fulfill, not abolish the law. It's something radically new, which helps us see that the law still applies, but Jesus mercifully grants us a new perspective to it. Now, perhaps in the case of adultery, this is best summed up by Jesus' interaction with the adulterous woman, uh, which is recorded for us in John chapter 8. That's a captivating exchange, and one which each of us need to take to heart. I mean, just crazy what had happened. The religious leaders, they've brought a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery before Jesus. They want to test him. They want to accuse him. They're trying to trap him. And he challenges them and he says to them, which of you is without sin? If, if there's one of you here, you can chuck the first stone, is effectively what he says. The result? It's an incredible scene. His accusers all sulk away. They, they, they slip away into the background. And Jesus and the woman are left alone. I picture them face to face. And he says to her, I do not condemn you either. But go and sin no more. To all those who are committing adultery right now. To all those who are angry or out of relationship with someone right now, Jesus says the same. If you come to him genuinely wanting to repent and ask for his forgiveness, these words apply to you. Jesus will not condemn you. This is the new. But his command is to go and sin no more. And back in Matthew 5, Jesus shows his followers on the hillside how to begin to do that. So firstly, put on Holy Spirit vision. Secondly, take urgent action. Let's look back to verse 23. Verse 23 says this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. There is so much here, um, and we only have limited time this morning, so let me briefly just make a few comments. Jesus is teaching at a time when the temple in Jerusalem was still in use. Okay, so this is still, this is still, Jewish people are still offering sacrifices. They're coming to God aware that he holds their sin against them, but they are asking for his forgiveness through sacrifice. Now, we don't need to do that because of Jesus' sacrifice. We know that. But the principle here remains. What Jesus is saying is that, is that there is something about being right with God in, in the vertical, in our relationship with God in the vertical, that plays out in our relationships with each other, that plays out in our relationships in the horizontal. There's something about that. So much so that it is no good coming to him asking for forgiveness if as far as it is humanly possible for us, we have not sought to be reconciled with each other first. Again, this is a demand that goes deep, isn't it? This is a demand that goes deep. First, 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 go and be reconciled. 
to your brother. In other words, God says, before you go any further with me, or indeed anything else, sort this relational problem out. Now, at one level, this isn't easy, is it? Another level, it's very easy. Now, just ask God for forgiveness. If we've got angry, if we've hurt someone, or if we've lied, or we've held begrudging thoughts against someone, that's the easy part. It's much harder to humble yourself, to own your own sin, and then go to your brother or sister and ask for their forgiveness. That is what deeper, greater obedience requires. We prioritize it. And we take action quickly. ASAP. As soon as possible. Maybe you are here this morning and you know that something isn't right between you and someone else in this church family. Maybe you know something isn't right between you and a Christian brother or sister elsewhere. Maybe it's an angry word. Maybe it's a grudge. A sinful attitude. An unhelpful disagreement. Will you leave church this morning and make it a priority as far as it is humanly possible for you? To put it right. But Jesus isn't done with us yet. The application goes even deeper. It isn't just confined to Christian relationships. Take a look at verse 25 to 26. Jesus says this. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still, on, um, while you're still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. I tell you the truth, you won't even get out until you've paid the last penny. Jesus isn't giving legal advice here. (laughs) That's not what he's doing. It's not about how to avoid a legal dispute over the position of a garden fence or something like that. Rather, he's telling a story. It's not quite a parable, perhaps, as we would understand parables, but he's telling a story to highlight the folly of not taking urgent action to resolve relational conflict. If we seize the initiative quickly, if we own up to our part in the problem and ask for forgiveness without seeking our own justification, then there is a good chance that the relationship will be restored and the worst possible scenario, the worst possible case scenario will be avoided. This is what Jesus is saying. If, however, we don't act quickly and we don't address things as soon as possible, things will fester, things will get out of hand, things will escalate. That's what's going on in this story he's telling. And relationships will seriously break down. So again, can I ask, who do you need to speak to after this service? Not just within our own church family, but wider. Who do you need to call or visit without delay? What Jesus is saying here is that his followers can't be too proud to apologize, especially to family. His followers can't dig their heels in and justify their actions. 
and his followers can't leave their resentment to be nursed and to grow. Because as someone once wisely said, the one patient that never gets better with nursing is resentment. Just think back over the past week and consider all the things that have been urgent for you that you've had to do this week. One or two things coming to mind, those things that you've needed to do quickly, those things that you've needed to do that have been important. How often has the mending of broken relationships made it on our, onto our urgent to-do lists? First, first go to your brother. So, put on Holy Spirit vision, take urgent action, and finally, take drastic action. Take drastic action. Look at, uh, one last time, at verses 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Are we to take Jesus literally here? Is Jesus speaking literally? Of course he's not. He's deliberately exaggerating To make the point. When the eye or the hand lead us into temptation, we need to take drastic action. Joseph, I think, needs to be our role model here. You'll remember Joseph in the Old Testament. He got into a bit of a scrape with his boss's wife. She fancies him. She gives him uh, about as avert a green light to fornication as it is possible to get. He is self-controlled. But not only does he not give in to her demands for sex, he takes immediate drastic action. What does he do? Can anyone remember? He flees. He hightails it out of there. He gets as far away as possible. He runs. He puts distance between it, the temptation that is, between him and, uh, and the temptation. What's the result of that? He loses his freedom. He loses his job. He ends up in prison. He's called a rapist. But he doesn't lose or compromise his faithfulness. So what will drastic action look like for you? It needs to be extreme or sin will keep rearing its ugly head. Hence a famous quote by John Owen which says, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's got to be drastic. We need to take drastic action. But to take drastic action we need an honest Holy Spirit assessment. We need that vision. And it would be extremely naive of me talking to a group of people this size, any group of people this size, to assume that these issues of anger and lust are not problems for us. And it would be even more naive of me to assume that just because we're Christians, or indeed interested in following Jesus, that we are immune to such issues. 
my personal experience, my experience in pastoral ministry for 25 years, let alone the statistics, all clearly tell me this is not the case. And so my final question this morning is this. What does Holy Spirit-inspired, urgent, drastic action look like for you today? Maybe right now some of you feel so far into your sin you don't know how God could ever forgive you. Remember his words. Even now, if you turn to him, he does not condemn you. But he pleads with you to go and sin no more by taking urgent, drastic action. So stop that intimate relationship with someone who isn't your husband or wife. Throw away those magazines those books, those videos. And I'm not just thinking about pornography here, although that is the obvious application. But what is it that is leading you into temptation? Get some accountability software on your computer. Not just for the content, but the amount of time you might spend on it as well. I know of one man in my old church, he got rid of his internet connection altogether. Do you know what? He's still alive. It's possible. More importantly, he is still walking with the Lord. And if your internet connection causes you to sin, disconnect it and go without. It is better for you to have to do everything manually in this world than to end up in hell in the next. If your money causes you to sin because, you, what you, because of what you spend it on, then give it away. It is better for you to lose all your money than to go into hell. Friends, whatever it is for you, there are so many different applications. But whatever it is for you, may the Holy Spirit convict you of your deep down ingrained sin today. And may he give you the courage... To keep following your saviour with a deeper and a more honest obedience. That begins right now. Let's pray. Just a moment of quiet. Allow the Holy Spirit to prompt you, to nudge you. Maybe something has been glaringly obvious to you this morning as I've been speaking. Maybe something is only just coming to mind now. What is it going to look like? To do business with the Lord of all.
our loving Heavenly Father, please would you keep giving us the required vision that we need to look deeper within, to have an honest assessment of the state of our hearts. Give us the courage to be killing the sin that we see within and the ability to take urgent and drastic action. Not so that we can climb up and make ourselves acceptable before you, but so that you can keep doing your work of purifying and refining within us. And we pray it for his name's sake and for his glory. Amen. We're going to carry on in prayer before David does lead us in prayer. Can I just say that if anything that I have said today has prompted in you the need to want to have a conversation with somebody, uh, I am more than willing to do that. I appreciate that if you you want to talk to me about something that's confidential, you may not want to mention that straight away as we're leaving um, this morning. But please do get in touch with me. Please do ring me or email me. Just ask to, uh, if we can have a chat. And I'd love to just help and pray with you uh, as we think about that.